This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we have been looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels. Ben, we've been marching here in this last episode and, the, and several to come through the last week in the life of Jesus. We looked at Sunday, the Sunday before his arrest and crucifixion last time, and Monday with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and then the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. And this week and next week, we'll be taking a look at the events of Tuesday, by, by my best guess, the Tuesday of that week. So now we're just a few days before his arrest. And this week and next week, these, he's teaching at the temple. He's, he's sharing with people about his true identity. And today, what's coming right into the crosshairs is his authority. He begins it in a, a kind of an interesting way by this episode with a fig tree. We're going to follow the narrative in Mark today. It's in a few of the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark. We'll just follow the one that's in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, about this strange little fig tree incident. Mark 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Let's just hang out there for a minute. When's a time that you've been the hungriest? I mean, you were just, you were hungry, and all you could think about was after some practice or after a long drive in a car or some kind of an event, or you, or you could smell food. And it was, no, you can't have the Thanksgiving meal for three more hours. Like, <laughs> you got nearly hungry. A good hungry story for me here. I don't know. I'm pretty hungry at the moment, uh, honestly. And so I'm <clears throat> dreaming about lunch uh, as we talk. I don't know. I can't think of a specific moment. I found myself hungry. You know what? Probably when I was a teenager and like growing like a weed, I could not seem to get full. And so I was just seemingly hungry all the time. I can remember in high school getting home at the end of the day and going to get nutty bars and I would eat the entire box. So not just like they, you know, they came in like basically a pack of two. Um, I would eat the entire box, and so there was probably four packs of two in there. And uh, my mom, my brother, and I are only 15 months apart, and I, during our uh, teenage years, I think we ate her out of house and home because we could not stop eating. Um, it's, a, it's a weird thing. We're, we're raising a 17-year-old boy right now. I'll tell you about Abraham. He, he can pack it away, and it's like, Meal and pre-meal and post-meal and after-meal and sometimes it's three sandwiches for like one of these tweeners and like how do you do that and he's slim and fit and athletic. Yeah, when I when I was in college, my brother and I used to go run six miles a day uh, together. And uh, at the time, I was managing a pizza restaurant, and I would get done running. I would go in for the evening shift um, at the restaurant. And I would go in an hour early and I would make myself a large meat lover's pizza. So that's a 14 inch pizza. And I would eat the entire thing and need dessert. <laughs> well, of course. So I, I, maybe, I don't know if Jesus is that hungry. He, he certainly wasn't a growing boy by this point in his life, but he was hungry. And that's a, it's really an interesting commentary that 
here we have Jesus doing these miraculous things. He's healing people. He's revealing himself to be the son of God. He's raising Lazarus from the dead. And he's hungry. He was, he was all the way human and all the way God. Seeing in the distance, I'm in, I'm in Luke eleven thirteen. seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. The poor tree, it wasn't even due to have figs on it yet. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This, this encounter has always been a, an intriguing one to me. It seems a, a little bit out of character for Jesus to expect a fig tree that wasn't in fig season to have figs and therefore tell the tree, have a conversation with the tree and say, you're never going to bear anything again. There's more to the story going on here than the story, isn't it? Yeah. And we can't take it out of context. And so the story of the fig tree, as we're going to see, is wrapped around Jesus going into the temple and cleansing it. And so um, as we look at the what ultimately becomes an illustration that Jesus or winds up using the fig tree really as a metaphor, um, the temple cleansing itself plays into that. Okay, so in here in Mark's narrative, the temple cleansing is next, and then after the temple cleansing, in verse 20, it says, in the morning. So now it's the next day. And you're exactly right. It's wrapped around the cleansing of the temple. It's a metaphor for that. So walk me through that. How are those two events connected? And what is Jesus doing with the fig tree and with the temple cleansing in your understanding? Um, that temple worship itself, the worship was in everything surrounded um, it was uh, was centered in the temple life, and I think the fig tree is both a metaphor for the temple. That temple worship, as the the Jewish people knew it, was ending um, in relationship to God. And on top of that, it's also uh, pointing to uh, Israel as well. And so the the I believe at least that the the tree itself is serving as a a metaphor for the temple and for Israel as a whole and that the, the, what we know to be the gospel, um, this relationship with God is being opened not only to the Israelites, but to the Gentiles. And he, he pulls that out in this passage here in verse 20, Mark 11, verse 20 in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. No had longer had leaves on it. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, and again, this is outside of the temple as you're describing. I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. 
this is a different picture than temple worship. He's speaking directly to Peter and the other disciples, and they don't have to bring their their sacrifice or rely on the 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 priest or the high priest to go in and and make atonement for their sins. He's speaking directly to them that they have authority in their life of forgiveness, their life of prayer, their life of faith. How's, how does this impact how we as followers of Jesus today live our lives? That our relationship with God that we do, we have this intimate, personal relationship with God. That relationship needs to be lived out in community. This isn't a relationship that is is isolated necessarily. But that being said, at any time, I mean, we have direct access to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have this uh this intimacy with God, that personal intimacy with God that was not present in and through temple worship. It's interesting that as Jesus is living this out in in the midst of all the people, and they are living it out as well, all they seem to, all the leaders, the, the religious authorities seem to care about is what gives Jesus the right to do this? What gives him the the right to do these things. It's picked up in verse 27 of Mark 11. They arrived again in Jerusalem. So they were back on their way. They passed this fig tree. It had withered. And now they're back in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, again, these would be Sadducees, and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? We've, we've dealt with this question of authority a couple of times in this, this year-long journey with Jesus because it, it keeps being a, a question that's raised by the religious authorities trying to silence him. And I understand that in that day, a rabbi had to have authority that was given to him by others, other rabbis who had trained the person. There had to be a few people that would give the authority, and perhaps that's what they were asking. Like, where did you get your training? Who gave you the authority? But I, I want to go even beyond that, perhaps, and ask the question of why were they so reluctant to just look at what Jesus was doing and saying on face value and recognizing that he was different than all of them? He he certainly was, if, even if they couldn't wrap their mind around him being the son of God, he certainly was a man of God that had more authority and power than anyone they'd ever seen in their lives. And yet they're, they're pressing him on the issue. Like, who do you think you are? Yeah. Yeah. Real quick. Um, prior to answering that question, uh, going back to the issue, cause I want to make sure that it, and not that we have to belabor this, but the the temple sacrifice and the uh, the the people of God's relationship with the temple that did not end, you know, willy nilly. I mean, the 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 sacrifice system in the temple itself pointed to Christ, and so Jesus is the end to that sacrificial system, ultimately ending the need for the temple and those sacrifices as a, as a means or a way 
uh, to God. All those things symbolized the coming of the Messiah and pointed to uh, the ultimate sacrifice that we have in Christ, which then gives us uh, intimate relationship, personal relationship, direct relationship uh, with God the Father. Relative to the issue with the authority, people are oftentimes unwilling to yield authority. And so even in the presence of seeing the miracles that Jesus is carrying out, seeing the character of Christ, which really reflected the care, I mean, not really, just did, it reflected uh, the character of, of God as Jesus is God in the flesh. Um, their hearts are hardened toward them because yielding authority to Jesus means giving up their own. It's, it's ultimately yielding to him as Lord. Well, they're the folks who, as Jesus has characterized them in the past, they're lording authority over others. And so the, the notion that they're going to give up that authority, that they're going to yield to Jesus, that's not even on their radar. They see Jesus as a direct threat to the authority that they themselves possess. And I have to say that that's just as big a deal for us today to, to truly yield authority to, to Jesus Christ. We often talk, call him Lord and Savior. Savior saves me from my sins, but to be my Lord, my master, to have true authority in my life, that's another thing. And I find that in my own personal walk that when I struggle, it's I want to give authority to the wrong, the wrong power in my life, and usually it's myself. We have, certainly we have other authorities in life. And in, in, my, in my life, I'm living in the United States. I have a president. A, I have a governor of the state of Indiana. There's a mayor of the city of Fishers, and there are all kinds of authorities, you know, police officers and, and all kinds of authorities in my life. And even in the United Methodist Church, we, we have a bishop and uh, superintendents, and in the local church, we have a church board or a church council, and they have authority. There are lots of places where, where even the, you and I as pastors, we have those that we yield to to some degree that are authorities in our lives, including in our own family structure and family system, our, our mothers or fathers or our spouses. I mean, we have all kinds of, of places. How do we t balance all of that? Wanting to be our own authority, set our own course. We have authorities as part of being American citizens and being Christians and in a church. There's like lots of authorities in life. How do we figure out how to truly call Jesus Lord and give him authentic authority in life in the midst of a world where there are lots of authorities? <laughs> not to give an overly simplistic answer, but and not to be cliche about this, but at the end of the day, it's just a, it's just a means of yielding ourselves to Christ. And so I'm not going to live in contradiction to his authority, his lordship, over my life, or at least that's the desire of my life, is to not live in contradiction to his authority and lordship and to where when Jesus' authority is butts up against the authority uh, of another, I'm always going to yield myself or hopefully always yield myself uh, to Christ. That doesn't mean that I act out in a way that is... Um, that's going to bring ill repute to, to Christ. I'm not going to do it uh, in, the, in, in a character or a means that's contradictory to the character of Christ, but it's, it's 
you know, all for Jesus or not. I, I want to push back a little bit and say that's for for most of us, and sometimes for me, easier said than done. Um, to to say all for Jesus, but what if that when that comes into conflict with some of these other arenas of life? Yes, it's all for Jesus. It's it's harder to do. It's harder to live out than like like it's it's temptation to look back at the story and say those terrible chief priests, those teachers of the law, those those bad people that did those things because their authority was being challenged by Jesus. But I wonder at times like is that what keeps us from fully living out the gospel in our day? We all know the great commission. Make disciples. Few people do it because the authority in my life tells me to do it. The the spiritual authority, Jesus tells me to do it, but we often don't do it. We don't share our faith. We don't witness. We, we, we don't disciple people into faith because of our self interests. I just think that's a hard, it's easy to look back at those guys and give them a black eye and without realizing that we, we struggle with these same authority issues. Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying that we don't struggle with those same authority issues, but so much of that is uh for us and again, this is like first encounter with Christ. And so everything is being upended um in their world uh culturally and and otherwise. Um and so yeah, I mean, we have this disposition where oftentimes we are guided by self-interest, but even as you as you talk about the, the need for discipleship and how oftentimes, yeah, sometimes it's self-interest that keeps us from disciple from discipling others or for bearing witness to Christ because we're worried about how that's going to affect our life. Um, I think a lot of times, though, the, the lack of discipleship and yielding to Jesus's command relative to the Great Commission and to, to go and to bear witness, a lot of that has to do more, I believe, with the institutional church and what it has nurtured over time um, rather than disobedience to Christ. And so, so many followers of Christ are potentially living in a, in a church culture where that is not a priority. And so the idea that they're going to go and live that out on a daily basis, it's a foreign concept. And so if it's a foreign concept within the body of Christ that they're worshiping, within which they're worshiping, it's going to be a foreign concept in their life. So what has the institutional church nurtured and why? The institution, self-preservation of the institution. Why? But it's, why? Own, it's own self-interest. Because, because if Christ should be the authority over the institutional church. Well, it's the church's own self-interest, and so it becomes so fearful and worried, and so I think guided by what it perceives or what it's what it's come to understand as success, uh, especially within a Western context. And so, success means more people in the pews, and so that becomes the hyper focus of the church rather than faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so, that's where I think. Um, that's where you start to see compromise itself because the question then becomes, how do I get people through the doors and into the pews rather than the ultimate question is, what does it mean to be faithful to Christ and to live into the good commission or the great commission? Yeah. So that, I mean, for myself, 
just being vulnerable, you know, as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 35 years or so, the question, the tension always comes into place of not, I'm just putting, let's say, pleasing God or pleasing people. And so who's the true authority in my life? And and if I live in such a way or, or teach or preach or or move the church in such a way that puts me at odds with the people, um, I'm, I'm out of a job or, or at least out of a following of, of people. I'm just saying, I, I think that this, there's a temptation for us to look back at these guys and say, I would have never done that. I would have never been one of these chief priests or the crowd who ends up a couple of days later shouting, crucify him. And I wonder sometimes with our, the way we structure our lives, if we're doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, and I'm and I'm not saying that don't don't misread me here. I'm not casting aspersions upon these these guys in the first century, whether it's the religious leaders that are in essence either by their own pride or uh, in some ways this this rooted theology. I think the the the, the pride of um, of uh, of authority that you see a lot in the Sadducees, and, and while that might have been a piece of what the Pharisees were wrestling with, they they are also like rooted in this uh, this pride of theology that they've developed over over time, even a theology where it's divergent from the Old Testament. And so, I'm not casting aspersions on these guys from the standpoint that yeah, they are rooted in a particular uh, lifestyle, a particular culture a particular way of doing things that is blinding them to Jesus. We see the same thing with those closest to Jesus. The disciples are spending intimate time with him and are still blind at this point to what's coming. You know, uh, several days from now, they're all going to abandon him as he's arrested. And so I, I'm not casting aspersions on them from in saying that, well, I'd never do this because reality is um, if I had been in the place of, of Peter, I probably would have taken off as well and denied him. And so not, not coming at it from that standpoint, um, but also recognizing that the need, and one of the things that these guys do is they give us, I think, in a historical context in their relationship with Christ or living in opposition to Christ, it's, it, it's like, it, it, in one sense, it's looking into a mirror into my own depravity and recognizing through the lens of their pride that I could easily sub- or, and have been at, at times in my life uh, reflective of that pride. And so looking at them uh, in the narrative, it's a reminder of my need for humility. It's a reminder of my need to yield myself fully to Christ and ultimately to place myself under the objective authority of his word. And so my prayer, when I read scripture, that my, the, the essence of my prayer is, is God cause me to see my brokenness, cause me to see the areas of my life that are not aligned with your desire, with your will, with the character of Christ. And I pray for the spirit to ex- not only expose those things, but to refine me into the likeness of Christ. And so as I read the narrative, as I see these, see these guys, as I reflect upon my own life, it causes me to reflect on my own brokenness and want wholeness and a deeper desire to yield myself to Jesus that I would not persist in my pride. That was brilliantly said. It really, it really was. 
And thanks for being a willing or maybe unwilling sparring partner on this, because I, I just wanted to press into this topic of authority in a way that takes it out of the history and moves it into the heart of of us today Absolutely. and all who are listening to this, that this this idea that Jesus is Lord is tangible. It's it's palpable to to truly call him Lord, master of my life, and I am a bond servant, a slave of Christ, is more than just academic. It means it means the answer is yes, and then I turn to Jesus and say, What is the question? Right. I'm willing to follow him, period. Because he is the true authority in my life. Well, I hope this was a useful conversation that we had with one another today for all, all that were listening, because I, I believe it's one of the, the areas where in the modern church we struggle. And we, we've got to wrap our minds around this in some kind of a way so that we will truly yield ourselves to the authority of Christ in our lives. Mm. Otherwise, we're just simply asking the same question, by what authority are you doing these things? Mm. Who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. Jesus. And to recognize him for who he is. Next time, we're going to take a look a little bit more at the same teaching on the same day of Holy Week. And we'll look at the topic of authentic spirituality. Until then, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. And you can follow in along with more elements that are part of this year-long study. Until then, Doug, goodbye. Goodbye.